rather you live your life in vanity You traded all your hopes and dreams for insanity this is Restorative Justice Ministry with the Diocese of Austin. We're speaking with Renee Brown, Director of Counseling Services for Catholic Charities of Central Texas, and Deacon Ronnie Lostavica, our Coordinator of Pastoral Care and the Restorative Justice Ministry in the Gatesville region. I'm Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin, also involved in service to restorative justice. And this is our fifth and final session on speaking of trauma and sexual abuse. Again, uh, today's topic will be specific specifically trauma and sexual assault perpetrated against adults. Uh, For anyone who may be uh, listening, if this is going to be uh, too much of a uh, topic for you, we might want to suggest that you step out of the room. Uh, Parents, uh, this may be a a little much for children as well. Uh, We'll leave that to your discretion. But our hope is, above all, that putting on the table what exactly happens with people when they have sexual trauma uh, perpetrated against them, that they can be aware of what's happening to them, that they can find a way to be able to heal and to uh, bring some peace. So first of all, Renee, just want to ask you, what are the types of sexual abuse perpetrated against adults? So I was really shocked when I kind of did some research in this area because there was way more information than I thought I you know, even knew about. So when we think about the ways in which adults can be sexually abused— Um, It could be um, intimate partner sex. So kind of like the domestic violence piece, maybe a husband um, raping his wife. So there is intimate partner sexual abuse or um, incest. So incest can differ from child sexual abuse in that incest is is a family member directly abusing a child. And then child sexual abuse could be um, um, that could be a teacher and a child. It could be a family member and a child as well. Um, maybe um, maybe if a, an older sibling is showing this kiddo pornography or they're they have access to maybe some movies and TV shows that could be part of it. Um, acts of neglect in terms of sexual abuse. Um, sexual harassment. So, you know, if you're in the workplace or even I'm thinking probably if you're incarcerated, right, and you have a guard who's coming on to you sexually, you know, or they're making comments about your body or they're making comments about what they would like to do to you, you know, that's sexual harassment. Or it could be, you know, maybe an incarcerated person who's sexually harassing a guard, you know, back and forth. Um, you know, if you're commenting on the person's body and what you would like to do with them sexually, um, that's a form of sexual harassment. There is um, multiple perpetrator sexual assault. This was a, a term I had not heard of, but it's multiple perpetrators. So it would be like gang rape. Um, so, And that's if two or more people are raping um, a person, then that's considered multiple perpetrator sexual assault. I worked with a young lady who uh, had traveled here from uh, South America and on on her way into America, she was uh, gang raped by six men. So that would be multiple perpetrator, perpetrator sexual assault. Also elder abuse. Um, 
this is one that it said in America is growing, that so many of the elderly are being sexually abused primarily when they are in um, like a, a nursing home a situation, that they're seeing an increase in that type of sexual assault. And also there's being, uh, it was interesting in the article I was reading, but it was talking about sexual assault of men and boys, right? And for men, it did identify that that was um, kind of highly noted in the prison population of men being sexually assaulted, but that overall more men and boys are now reporting that they're, they've been sexually assaulted. You know, there's a history of women reporting, um, and we know that well, what we think we know is it's more prominent against women because that's what we hear, where men are less likely to report that because, you know, the ego and the things that men believe about themselves, you know, like, I shouldn't have allowed somebody to rape me. You know, I should have fought all these things. And and then that train of thought kind of gets instilled in boys as well. So that that is becoming something more prevalent but they feel like it's always been there it's just now it's being reported being reported more and then stalking i didn't think about that so much as as a sexual abuse piece but it, it's considered that especially if it's somebody that's stalking a person with the intentions or they go through with a uh, a rape right so um i was sharing with somebody i'd read an article where this person um, this man had actually watched this little girl come home from school, and then he would sit outside the house, so he knew the routine, right? So he had been stalking her, and then he went in and raped the child. And so that would be um, an, uh, an example of stalking. And then, of course, we've talked about in our previous episode, adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse, and then technology, you know, um, so much of technology and social media right now, there's a lot of sexual abuse in that way. Um, I was recently watching a program, and it was several years back, so technology's a little bit better, but this man uh, befriended these young ladies online. They thought they were meeting a kid their age. Turned out he was not, and he could see them, like, through the video piece. He had been watching them, and so he kind of— he you know, basically blackmailed them. Like, if I know where you live, and if you don't start taking your clothes off so I can take these pictures, then I'm going to let your parents know what you've been doing, so to speak. And so that's also a form of sexual abuse. Anytime there's technology involved, or let's say you have a a girl, I think it's, I'm saying girls because it seems to be more prominent, but let's say, uh, you know, this guy says, hey, take off your shirt for me, and then he's taking pictures, and then it's on social media and everybody at school can see this, right? That's sexual abuse. Um, ex- uh, sexual exploitation by helping professionals. Um, I know a few years ago it came out about the, uh, it was an Olympic doctor, I think with like a, I can't remember which women, if it was gymnastics, it was some women's team, right? And the doctor had been sexually assaulting all these women. So this has become something within uh, the professional setting that's happened in as well. And when you have teachers who are having affairs with children, a high school kid is still a high school kid, right? And so that's, you know, sexual abuse when this happens. Um, Sexual abuse of people with disabilities, I have a client right now who has a child. Well, her she's not a child. She's 26. Her daughter has Down syndrome. And this is one of the things that she constantly worries about, you know, is her daughter 
you know, being attacked by somebody and her daughter not really understanding what's going to be happening. And then it also talked about prisoner rape, um, people who are inmates. um, There's a high prevalence uh, prevalence for sexual assaults in prisons, uh, both in men and women's prisons, and then military sexual assault, um, which, you know, I kind of knew it happened, but I wasn't really aware so much of that. Um, And so actually, this is a term that came about through the Department of Veteran Affairs. Um, So sexual violence within the military. And then the last one, which I found very interesting, was um, like the legal definitions for terms like rape, sexual assault, sexual abuse. It varies from state to state. And it and it's also the consents. The consent for sex kind of differs from state to state. And so that can be sexually abusive as well, right? So like in, I know, I think in the state of Texas, you know, if you're 18 and you've been dating a girl that was 16 and you have sex with her, well, that's statutory rape. So, but another state may not have that same type of law. So they were talking about that that's really abusive as well. Um, And then just kind of concentrating on the prisoner rape I found something that I was not aware of, and it talks about um, in 2003, the Prison Rape Elimination Act was passed with the goal of analyzing the status of sexual assault crimes committed in prisons and offering support services to inmates. And this act has been established through the National Prison Rape Elimination Commission, and in May 2012... Uh, 2012, the Department of Justice outlined means for preventing sexual assaults and offering survivors the care they need, and they could get free sexual assault forensic exams. They could get uh, services, you know, counseling. And I think what really bothered me was I wonder how much of this help people are really getting, because my understanding from having an incarcerated child is that you're not going to tell because you're afraid of the repercussions, right? So then it makes it very challenging that there's actually um, something in place to help incarcerated persons, but they're not going to take advantage of it because you're afraid of the repercussions, you know, for maybe other inmates, from guards, or whomever. Just um, people not believing that you in particular with your personal history of other things mm-hmm. could could be vulnerable to that. Deacon Ronnie just handed me our uh, – all of us who are volunteers have to carry this multifold card that has the core values for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, the mission statement, and uh, two panels of it have to do with sexual assault and sexual abuse. So they literally expect us as volunteers to school ourselves about how to um, – see in the people we're dealing with that this Mm -hmm. may have happened and then what we're supposed to to do about it. And it describes what you just did uh, talk about, Renee, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Uh, It talks about sexual assault and abuse with uh, the red flags, uh, with the victims, changes in mood, changes in behavior, with the predators, stalking, grooming, extortion, many of the things that you've uh, you've talked about with staff spending time with a particular offender, calling an offender out at odd times, things of that. So they're literally for the volunteers, and we're volunteers. We're not paid staff, mm-hmm. uh, but they're still trying as part of this PREA 
they're trying to put all hands on deck to to watch for these things. And it's not that difficult to, to notice if, if, if something's going on. Um, all you can do is trust that what's stated for the program is actually being followed. But like with any institution, including our church, mm-hmm. uh, we find that when things uh, have to do with sexual assault in the military, too. I mean, we've been seeing headlines uh, uh, for quite a number of months now, particularly with the local military installations uh, with issues of that nature, that it requires addressing and readdressing. And even though protocols get into place, they don't always get followed. And a lot of times, because as you just said, people are are not all that uh, uh, ready to to step out and say this is this has happened to me. Uh, one thing I do like about how TDCJ handles this is they do at least tell us about this. They do at least invite us to participate in the monitoring and the oversight and the reporting as as well. So I think that the intent is genuine. I just know, and I think we all know, that when you get into large, unwieldy institutions, following things to the right nuance and detail when it's so individual and yet you're trying to do one size fits all, it doesn't always work to to its best effect. But it's better than nothing, uh, number one, and you hope that at least in some X number percentage cases – what the thing was designed to to happen and help people either recover or be protected actually is going to happen. And so that's our hope, and it's it's why we we do school ourselves on it, Deacon Ronnie and I both. And I think most volunteers that that I know uh, take that seriously. They don't just look at that and go, oh, yawn, you know, or, uh-huh. or anything like that. Um, I think there's some skepticism by some of the the offenders about the effectiveness of this, but it is there. And it's on paper, and a lot of thought went into it. And so um, to, for the times that it does work, um, we're, we're glad. And for the times that it doesn't, we hope that it'll start being more consistent. Well, I'm so glad to hear that uh, TDJC is, you know, taking this seriously and working on that. I think what I think about is, you know, for me, when I think about people who are incarcerated, I think so many of those people have already experienced trauma, and then you're you're in a setting where you're being somewhat re-traumatized, where you don't always feel safe and protected, and maybe you don't feel like some of your needs are being met. And safety is a primal need for all people. And so um, when I read that, it was kind of scary thinking about that because, you know, we want to feel like people would be able to report and feel safe that they could do that. So I'm glad it's being taken seriously. Renee, what is the impact of sexual assault on victims and their survivors? So this is, it's very similar to kind of some of the things we read before with trauma, but, you know, um, being that hypervigilance, you know, um, when I have worked with people, um, I've worked with a few rape uh, survivors and it's the disrupted sleep, nightmares, Uh, rumination where they're just kind of reliving this experience over and over and over. And often the reliving of the experience is also, it includes like, how could I have gotten out of this? What could I have done differently, right, to kind of change this? And this increased need for control. You know, they want to feel like they have control over self and their surroundings, their environment. And sometimes they'll minimize or kind of deny the situation as a, as a mechanism for coping, you know, well, um, I was raped, but it could have been worse. 
I don't know how, but you know what I mean? Well, at least they didn't kill me. So they'll minimize. Um, and there could be maybe a tendency to isolate self. They want to be alone a lot. They just want to sit in their feelings. Um, it can be um, feelings of detachment. You know, they're deta- they're detached from their feelings of, of self and maybe detached from other peace, people. A feeling of shame and then a feeling of betrayal is is very prominent. You know, if I've been sexually assaulted, you know, I feel like I've been betrayed. Um, especially I had a client one time who was raped by her husband. And so that was she could work through the domestic violence pieces. But the fact that he raped her and she was a very uh, religious person. And so this was almost like the ultimate betrayal for her was that he had raped her. Um, also, um, when we're thinking about the assault itself, some um, some important factors are going to kind of play in that. So it's it's the the nature of the assault, right? Um, for a person that's maybe raped by their husband, might feel different than the person that was raped by a stranger on the street, right? So sometimes that situation will will kind of differ for people. How long did it last? You know, if you were raped and it took an hour, if you were sexually assaulted and it took an hour, but maybe in another, it was like 10 minutes, that can kind of make a difference for people, the way that they process it and the way that they think about it and the way that it's going to impact them and the extent of the physical harm, right? So if you were beaten and raped, that person may have some different emotions and and some different um, responses than the person that was just raped. And I don't mean just in a... I'm not meaning that in a to take away from it. Um, and whether the victim has an earlier childhood history of abuse, you know, if a person was abused as a kid and they were sexually assaulted as a kid, their their way of thinking about this can be, well, I deserve this or I've been through this before. I know what to do. Um, they may kind of minimize that experience. And then um, also it's the way that people worry about the victim, how the victim worries about what their friends and family are going to think uh, can play a role in this as well. Um, and I have this really great quote that I wanted to share from Judith Herman. And she says she explains that trauma enhances the need for protective relationships, but that one of the harms of trauma is it also violates the human connection. Right. So people are often conflicted. Right. Because with trauma and that sexual trauma, people want to have a protective relationship. They just need to be protected. But then because of the sexual trauma, they don't want to be connected to people. So it creates this sense of confliction within people. So it makes it difficult for them to have relationships. Let me skip ahead and, and move us into uh, uh, talking about PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. What is PTSD and how does it relate to adult sexual assault? So I took this definition from a really great book that I have, um, and it's all it's everything you ever wanted to know about PTSD, and I love it. And um, unfortunately, the book is somewhere where I can't reach it, or I would tell you the author of the book. But it says... Um, PTSD results from exposure to overwhelming uh, stressful event or series of events such as war, rape, uh, abuse. Um, it leads to it's like an extraordinary event that creates distress for somebody. Um, these events are usually kind of all of a sudden 
And so that's kind of the basics. And then it goes into PTSD um, is an anxiety disorder. It can take months to develop or it could take years to develop. And it's based out of experiencing or witnessing a traumatic event. So it's, you know, it could be like a one-time accident. It could be interpersonal violence. It could be military combat. It could be somebody that's been imprisoned, um, just some things like that. And you're re-experiencing, you know, that trauma over and over through nightmares, flashbacks. You know, there's the hyper arousal that we talked about before. The difficulty with sleep, anger, outburst, um, difficulty concentrating, um, the avoidance of of all those memories and and not wanting to um, get into the emotional pieces. PTSD can also be characterized by disassociation, which we talked about a little bit earlier. And I can tell you that PTSD is that thing that it has to be um, assessed, Right. So as a clinician, as a counselor, I just can't you tell me something and I diagnose you with PTSD. It doesn't work that way. People really need to be assessed because there's a lot of little nuances um, with PTSD. And so they always encourage people to be assessed for PTSD. Renee, in relation to PTSD, can you explain the 12 spiritual steps program? I was so excited when I found this, and it came out of the the big book that's over here in my bag, you know, um, for uh, PTSD. Um, I love this. So the 12 Steps Recovery Program was developed by Dr. Joel Brindy, um, and it's similar to if you think it's 12-step program for substance abuse, right? Um, but this is like in a spiritual nature, and one of the things that I really love about this this book that I have on PTSD. And I'm going to lean over, guys, because I really want you, I want to be able to give credit. Thank you, Father Harry. He reached over and got my bag so I could get this book. I have to make sure I give credit. This was written a while back, and it's called The Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Source Book. It is a huge book. You guys can't see it, but they can. And here, and it's a guide to, to healing and recovery and experiencing growth after PTSD and it was written by Glenn, and I'm not going to be able to say their name right, Sharardi, S-C-H-I-R-A-L-D-I. And he's a physician, but this book has so much great information about PTSD, what it is, how it comes about, um, types of therapy that you could use. But one of the brilliant things about this book is there's a whole chapter devoted to spiritual and religious growth even after PTSD and working through PTSD. And I thought this was so great because some counselors don't want to delve into that religious and spiritual piece. But for me as a counselor, I think this is such an important part of healing because when things become really hard, when you're in recovery and you're doing doing healing work from trauma, um, a lot of counselors don't want to venture this way. My personal, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, my personal piece is this is an important part because when things are hard and you don't want to talk to your mom because you don't have a good relationship, but you only get to see your counselor once a week, you can go to Jesus every day, all day long. Jesus will be there, spiritual, religion, however you need to put it, that can be your go-to to get through a really difficult, challenging situation. Um I love this. Um, 
this book was so great. And so one of the things I want to share with you is the 12-step recovery program. And so the first the first one is acknowledgement of traumas and seek God's help, right? So this means you can't avoid that trauma anymore. You can't push it down. This did happen to you no matter what it is. If it was childhood sexual abuse, if it was neglect, if you were raped, if you were raped in that prison, whatever it was, you have to acknowledge that trauma. And then you're going to seek God's help, right? And you're going to ask God, like, how can you help me get through this? And then seeking meaning, right? Seek meaning. There is something to be learned, you know, in any trauma that we've experienced and in all of our difficult situations, meaning can be derived from that. And then you can take it further and like, what did God want me to learn out of all of this? You know, when I tell people that I was abused sexually as a child, I can share that now. And there, I don't feel anything inside, right? There's no bad. There's no good. This is something that happened to me. But I always feel like it was supposed to happen to me because now I get to help so many people who've had the same experience, right? And when I did my healing work, God was with me in that healing work. And so I have a beautiful testimony that that's in my heart that I can share with others to help them get through. Well, and you're a prime example of what we speak of in, in Catholic spirituality specifically that says that suffering is a means for God to bring about good. So when mm-hmm. I have suffering in my life and I'm trying to find that meaning, one of our go-tos is always going to be, even though in and of itself it's not a pleasant or happy thing, God will make good out of it. So how am I going to participate in that good? How can I cooperate with that good? How can I believe that that's real? Mm-hmm. Because, because I'm in pain for my suffering. But I'm, the next step is, where is that pain going to produce a good wrought by God? It's it's servitude, right? For me, that's how I look at it. Like now I can truly be in the service of God with my story and share, celebrate that healing can happen, right? If you do the work and the work is, is you working, you praying, you talking to God, asking him to lead you in this. And if you can get a good counselor on the side, do that too, right? And then seek healing in order to trust. Like we want to be able to not just trust others, but trust ourselves. you know, and trust in God. So seek uh, healing in order to trust. Seek uh, self-understanding and be open to change, right? So many of us are kind of closed off to change. I'm one of them. I mean, change can be really challenging, but, um, you know, self-understanding, seeking that openness, seeking understanding and control of our anger, right? And understanding that anger is not the surface thing. We talked about that, I think, in another episode where we talked about all the things like frustration, being overwhelmed, being trapped, being rejected, right? So having control of all of those emotions uh, and that anger. Seek understanding, control of fear, you know, when I was coming here today, I was listening to uh, some a song, and she's saying, you know, that in the preface of the song was that, you know, God put us here to be fearless, not to live daily in fear, right? So when you're seeking his help, when you're seeking God's help in this 12-step program, part of that is you want to be able to control fear and be and control that sense of helplessness. Because if you have God, you're not helpless. If you have God, you have every tool that you need. Also, seeking resolution of guilt through forgiveness and love, right? So 
we don't want you to hang on to that guilt. God did not put you on this earth to sit in guilt. No. And so guilt, you know, having a resolution to guilt is really about forgiveness and about love for others, forgiveness of, for others, and maybe even love for self, right? And forgiving self as well. And seeking healing and grief. I didn't talk a lot about this, but there is so much grief and loss also. It's a piece I kind of skipped in all of this. In trauma, trauma brings about sometimes grief and loss, right? So if you were sexually abused, there's a grief in that. There's a loss in that. So gr- seeking healing in that. Seek to surrender self-destructive tendencies and commit to life. If you're being self-destructive to others or yourself, you want to be committed to your life and the life of others. You want to replace revenge with justice and forgiveness. We want to seek knowledge and direction to find a renewed purpose in life and to seek out love for self and others. Renee, we want to thank you so much again uh, for all of these sessions on trauma and sexual abuse. Uh, we know ultimately it is God, the divine physician, who can heal us. But as you said, we got to do our part as well, because that's why the Lord came and shared our humanity with us. So we pray, Lord, look with compassion on all those who have lost their health and freedom. Restore to them the assurance of your unfailing mercy. Strengthen them in the work of recovery and help them to resist all temptation. To those who care for them, grant patient understanding and a love that perseveres. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Brother, if you walk with me, brother, 